This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is taken uh, from Luke chapter 16, verse 16 to 31. So it's continuing from what we read uh, from today's uh, responsive reading. So I'll give you some time uh, to take out your Bible uh, or your, activate your e-Bible app. So I'll give you some time to do that. Uh, meanwhile, um, if, alternatively, if you are not unable to do so, you can also re- uh, refer to the projection on the screen. Luke chapter 16, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died. And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over here from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, He said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God. I'll now pass the time over to Pastor Andrew to explain uh, today's passage to us. Everyone, can you hear me? Okay, that's great. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly want to ask that you will help us to hear 
your words very clearly in our hearts. For indeed, uh, these are hard words on a very difficult topic, on something which for us who live in the world, uh, influence very much to value highly, uh, which is wealth and money. And so we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, today I need you to uh, keep the Bible passage open in front of you, chapter 16. Uh, I won't be flashing up the passage in front of you, but I will be flashing up the cross-references, so you just keep it in front of you, chapter 16, and then we'll go from there. So Andrew Wong was supposed to preach uh, today, and actually he had a really great sermon prepared, but unfortunately he's diagnosed with dengue, so you got me instead. Uh, So please pray for his recovery. Now, uh, as uh, the pastors were reviewing his uh, sermon on uh, Thursday, he came out with a really good introduction and he gave me permission to use it. So he was telling us about how he was going to the gym one day and he had his uh, gym shoes on, he had his uh, gym clothes uh, in his bag, he had his towel over his shoulder. He was feeling really good about himself and so he was going to the gym, walking down the stairs, feeling really positive, feeling really enthusiastic about a good workout. But then he had his, uh, his phone on and uh, he was looking at his WhatsApp and so he missed a step and he stumbled down the stairs and he ended up rolling down to the bottom. And so he was lying at the bottom of the stairs trying to figure out whether he had broken anything. And he said that that can be like us, right, in our own spiritual walk. We are going along, we're feeling really positive, we're feeling really good about ourselves, but then we suddenly stumble and we realize that uh, the reality is rudely very different for us. We're actually not right with God, we're actually not walking very well at all. And that's what today's passage is really about. It's really a wake-up call for us to ask ourselves, are we really walking well in God. So the context today is that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and that's what we had for our responsive reading in chapter 16, verse 1 to 15, right? Jesus was speaking to his disciples, and the context was all about money, wealth, worldly possessions. So Jesus told the parable of the dishonest manager, and the lesson was to use worldly wealth to make friends and to gain a welcome to our eternal heavenly home. Jesus had gone on to say to be good stewards of our worldly wealth so that we may be entrusted with true heavenly wealth. And Jesus ended by saying that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve both God and money. Now, the audience, in a sense, moves from the disciples in verse 1 to 13. And in verse 14, the Pharisees come into the picture. The Pharisees are also in the crowd and they are listening in. In verse 14, it says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this, heard the parable, heard about being good stewards, heard about not being able to serve two masters, and they heard about all this, and they were sneering at Jesus. They were ridiculing Jesus. They were mocking Jesus. And he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so this is the context of today's passage that we're looking at today. Jesus teaches the disciples about the value of money. The Pharisees sneer and mock Jesus. And today we look at the response of Jesus to the sneering of these Pharisees. So in verse 16, Jesus responds to these Pharisees. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. 
And the man who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, I want you to notice first of all that it's really strange what's happening here, right, within the flow of the logic of what we've been looking at today. Because in chapter 16, verse 1 to 17, it's all about money, right? It's all about money. Jesus is teaching disciples about money, about the parable of the dishonest manager, about being good stewards, about being, not being able to save, serve two masters. And then here, in chapter verse 14, the Pharisees sneer and ridicule money because they love money. Now, in verse 16 to 18, then, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets and about marriage. But then in verse 19 to 31, he then returns to this topic of money. But it's kind of strange, right? Because if you think about it, if you look at your Bibles, hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you open, which is what I want you to be doing. You could easily just take out verse 16 to 18 and go straight to verse 19 and the, the logic of the conversation will still be flowing forward. Right? It's like, why does Jesus and why does Luke bother to record this for us about Jesus talking about the law and the prophets and about marriage? It seems like a digression, right? It's like, it's like we're so used to Jesus, you know, cutting the, the, the arguments of the self-righteous Pharisees and throwing knockout punches. And here it seems as if, you know, Jesus kind of like missed his punch, right? He's like, missed the question or started talking about something else. So why is it that Jesus now talks about the law and the prophets and about marriage? Well, let's look a bit closer because I think it's, it's very key to understanding this passage. So Jesus says the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, the law and the prophets, I think, is talking about the Old Testament scriptures, right? The law, first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, God's scriptures, are being proclaimed until John. Now, which John is this? Who's John? John the Baptist, right? Now, what is so significant about John that he's this transition figure? Like, he's this inflection figure. Well, he's the one who, in a sense, prepares the way for Jesus, right? So there's this separation between the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets being proclaimed, John the Baptist coming, and then the kingdom of God being preached. So what is significant about John? Well, in Luke chapter 3, John was the one who prepared the way for Jesus Christ, right? So people were looking to John and asking if John were the Messiah. But in verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, and the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what we're meant to see is, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, were proclaimed until John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist comes, the kingdom of God is then proclaimed because after John the Baptist, Jesus, who is Christ, the king to come, has come. And therefore, the kingdom of God is now near. The kingdom now is now present among them. And so this is what is being preached. Now the passage keeps going on, right? In verse, if you have your Bible open in front of you, which I need you to, it says that in the second half or the last part of verse 16, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now what does it mean there in verse 16, and everyone is forcing their way into it? What is Jesus meaning here? Within the context, he's not saying every single person, or he's not talking about every universal person that ever lived. 
But within the context, he's talking about all sorts of different sorts of people. Everyone are now forcing their way into this kingdom of God. Now, this word forcing, it's not a negative word, right? It's not like, like they're doing it negatively. I think a better way of understanding it is they're taking very vigorous steps to enter into the kingdom. They're, they're forcing their way in a sense. Now, who are these everyone then that Jesus has in mind? Well, I think if we look in the context, and that's why context is very important, right? As we look at this period of salvation history. So after John the Baptist, Jesus has now come. These everyone who are now coming into the kingdom of God are those who are the least expected to come in. So if you look back in chapter 14, Jesus told the parable of the great banquet. And in that parable, we get a picture of those who are in a sense forcing their way or vigorously taking steps to enter into the kingdom of God. So who are they? Well, the master said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys and the town and bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, bring in the blind, and bring in the lame. In verse 23, the master told the servants, servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in. So even those who are beyond, like even the Gentiles, right, are forcing their way or taking steps to come in. And that's what we have seen in the last 16 chapters in the book of Luke. Right? We've seen Roman centurions forcing their way into the kingdom of God. We've seen the sinful woman coming to the kingdom of God. We see the tax collectors coming to the kingdom of God. These are the people who are taking vigorous steps to come into the kingdom of God. And all these people are coming into the kingdom of God except for the Pharisees and the religious teachers. Right? They are the ones who are sneering at Jesus. They are the ones who are mocking Jesus and ridiculing Jesus about his teaching, especially on money. So if you remember, uh, last week, we looked at, or the week before actually, before last week, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother, in a sense, is the Pharisee, we learned then. The older brother was angry, remember, at the prodigal son and the lost son coming in and refused to go in while the father went out and pleaded with him. And so all these people are forcing their way, vigorously taking steps to come into the kingdom of God. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they remain outside the house of God, outside the kingdom of God. Now verse 17, Jesus goes on to say, It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Now, what he's literally saying, if we were to translate this into English, is that the law is so immutable, it's so permanent, and it's so concretized in a sense, that even like, you know, the letter I, the dot wouldn't be removed. Or the letter T, that horizontal line cannot be removed. So why does Jesus suddenly say this in verse 17, that the law, right, is so permanent and immutable and so concretized that even the strokes of the pen will not be removed from the law. I think what he's trying to say is two things, right? So I think this diagram hopefully helps. See, the law and the prophets, they point to Jesus, right? And they point to Jesus in two ways, I think. One is, 
they point to the person of Jesus. So the law and the prophets are, in a sense, prophetic, right? They're, it's completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus, right? Everything about the law, down to the dots on the I's and the crosses on the T's, are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, even though we see this salvation history at work, right? There are two eras of salvation history, in a sense. But yet, the law and the prophets are still relevant because they are pointing to the person of Jesus and they're completely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But I think on top of that, it's also saying that the law and the prophets find their true meaning in the teaching of Jesus, right? So the true intentions of, of God in the law and the prophets find themselves fulfilled in the words and the teachings of Jesus. Now, I think this is how then this part fits in with Jesus replying to the Pharisees. You see, for the Pharisees, their role as the teachers of the law, their role as the religious leaders of God's people, were to love the law and the prophets and to love the law. So what Jesus is saying is, since the law and the prophets and the law point to Jesus and are fulfilled in the person of Jesus and find their true meaning or their true intention in the teachings of Jesus, then really the law, sorry, the, the Pharisees should also welcome Jesus and welcome him in his person and welcome his teaching about money, wealth, and possessions. But the reality is they do not love Jesus. They do not welcome Jesus. And this is because ultimately what's happening here is that they fail to hear the Old Testament scriptures. They fail to heed the law and to obey the law. And so Jesus brings verse 16 and verse 17 here to focus on the reality of why they are unable to welcome Jesus and why they respond to Jesus in this way. Their response to Jesus in rejecting Jesus actually betrays the fact that they don't love the law, they don't love the law and the prophets, they don't love the Old Testament scriptures. They fail to hear it and to heed it and to obey it. And so in verse 18, Jesus then gives the illustration of the reality of their failure to hear and to heed and obey the law and the prophets in their attitude to marriage. So in verse 18, Jesus says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the focus of verse 18 really is uh, that Jesus is trying to explain the true intention of the law with regards to marriage, right? Because we know from reading other parts of the Bible that really the religious leaders were diluting and ignoring and rejecting the law's teaching on marriage. So Mark chapter 10, uh, we see an example of this. Uh, so in Mark chapter 10, it records for us when Jesus was confronted by some Pharisees in verse 2, and they wanted to test Jesus. So they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. 
Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. By the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now we can see from Mark chapter 10 that the focus of the Pharisees' teaching was on divorce, right? Was on divorce. They wanted to emphasize divorce. But what Jesus sought to emphasize in God's teaching, in the law, right? Going back to creation, the first five books of the Bible, was marriage was one flesh. So we can see even from this very, very short conversation between the Pharisees and Jesus, that the Pharisees' attitude to the Old Testament was not to hear or to heed or to obey the Old Testament, but rather to ignore, dilute, and reject God's law. Whereas Jesus has a very high view of marriage, right? Consistent with what God was teaching. And he wanted to emphasize not divorce, but one fleshness in marriage. And so as we look again at this passage then, I think that, um, oh, okay, before we look at implications for today, I think that what we are meant to see is the Pharisees fail to love the law and the prophets and to obey it and to hear and heed it. And this is reflected in the attitude to marriage. So, I think this brings us to a relevant question today, which we will be drawing on as we keep going through. What is our attitude to God's scripture then? And what is our attitude to hearing Jesus' true fulfillment and teaching of God's scripture? And what is our attitude to hearing Jesus' teaching and fulfillment on marriage? Now, recently I had a chat with an Australian pastor friend of mine, and he asked me for urgent prayers. He said that he was feeling very burnt out, tired, and frustrated. But he shared with me that he was not the only one in uh, his uh, diocese, in uh, his denomination Australia, who felt this way. He quoted me some statistics. He said that in his diocese, there were 41 open positions for youth workers which are unfulfilled. Uh, there were a record number of ministers who were stepping down. And the number of students entering theological college was declining. And uh, the ones who came out of theological college didn't want to be senior pastors. So I asked him why that was. And he said the reason was pressure. And he said it wasn't pressure from the outside, but actually it was pressure from inside, from Christians within the church. And it was pressure with regards to this topic of marriage. Because in Australia, society outside the church had begun to accept uh, the idea of alternative forms of marriage, particularly same-sex marriage, and different sorts of sexuality and expressions of sexuality in marriage. And so for the Christians in church, they knew of friends and relatives and acquaintances of people outside the church who had embraced this alternate reality of marriage. And these people also knew of people outside the church who supported those who embraced these other ideas of marriage. But then after a while, the Christians in the church started questioning, why should Christians also not be allowed to embrace and celebrate these different forms of marriage? Why should Christians in the church not be able to support those who embrace these practices? And 
what had happened then was that youth, pressure, youth ministers, in a sense, were then pressured by their own church youth, their own church parents, on the teaching of the Bible on, on these issues on marriage. And the senior pastors were then challenged by their own congregation members on the issues of what the Bible says about marriage. Well, I was thinking to myself and I was listening to my, my pastor friend that this is us, right? But maybe just a few years down the road, right? Because for us today, we don't really face these issues, but guaranteed in a few years' time, we will face these issues as a church too. So the hot topic of marriage in the Pharisees' day was divorce, right? But the hot topic on marriage for our day will be same-sex marriage. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, will we be like the Pharisees who fail to heed and to hear and to obey God's scripture, God's word and Jesus' teaching? Or will our attitude to scripture and Jesus' teaching on marriage be that we will give full authority and obedience to what God says through Jesus, through his scripture, about what marriage is? Because this will be something that is very relevant to us, isn't it? Maybe just in a year, two years, three years' time. So, as we come to then this part of the passage, we see the failure of the Pharisees to hear and to heed God's scripture and also the teaching of Jesus through God's scripture. But in verse 19 onwards then, we see Jesus applying scripture in a sense and his teaching on money to this particular issue of chapter 16, which is how to use your money, how to use your possessions, and how to use your wealth, the very things that the Pharisees were sneering at. So Jesus tells a parable. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So here we're given two people, and they're greatly contrasted. The man, it says, we are told, was rich. But he was not just moderately rich, he was very rich. He dressed in purple, right? So in those days, it was very rare for you to dress in purple. Oops. Right? Okay, don't worry. It was very rare for you to dress in purple. Only the very, very mega rich wear purple. It's a bit like, you know, today when you see someone walking around in Burberry, right, or something. Someone showed me this funny thing with uh, the Prime Minister of Malaysia. You can Google it later, okay? And, uh, or, you know, you walk around in uh, Gucci or something. It's like wearing purple is the equivalent of what wearing Burberry and, and Gucci is today, like, okay? So he's very, very rich, and he flaunts his wealth. It also says that he was dressed there in fine linen, right? Now, the word here, linen... It's not just like outside clothes, right? But it represents the inside clothes, right? You know, the linen is like the undergarment. So he doesn't just wear posh outside clothes. He wears the very best inner garments, right? His underwear is posh too. He lives in luxury. Every day, his, every meal is like a 10-course meal, right? Every meal is like master chef. He's served by servants. He lacks nothing. But on the outside was the very opposite picture. There was a man there. And he was at the gate. But he wasn't just at the gate. It says there at verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. So that means that he was 
He didn't get there to the gate on his own steam, by his own feet. Someone actually had to carry him there or put him there. Probably because he was very weak and very sick. And this is evidence because his body was covered with sores. Right? It's like he had infected sores on him. He was unhealthy already. There was pus oozing from his sores. And while the rich man had fine food, abundant food, so much food that food was dropping from his table, this poor man was so hungry that he longed to eat the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. It was an image of great contrast between overwhelming luxury to impoverished nothingness. But it's even worse, right? Because in verse 21, even the dogs came and licked at his sores. Now, the dogs, in its original context, right, are not our beautiful pedigree dogs, right? But the wild dogs, okay? Because, you know, the Jews regard dogs' saliva as unclean. They don't keep dogs as pets, okay? So the dogs that came are these, like, wild scavenger dogs licking at his wounds. What a terrible picture it is, isn't it? So the man, the rich man, doesn't come to Lazarus to comfort the man. Only the dogs came to Lazarus to humiliate him and to cause him even more suffering. Now the thing that we need to notice here is that this man's name is Lazarus. He's being repeated over and over again, right? You can't miss that his name is Lazarus. It's quite interesting because in all the parables in the Bible, this is the only parable where there's someone named, right? And so the word Lazarus here, the name Lazarus means God helps, the one that God helps. But looking at this first three verses, it seems something incongruous, right? Something inconsistent. Here's this man, how is God helping him? How is his name Lazarus, right? Like, like Don Carson said in, uh, I think, one of the things, commentaries on this part, he said, you know, if, if this is the one that God helps, then maybe it's better not to be named Lazarus, right? But then in verse 22, we see then there's this great reversal. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was burdened. In Hades, he was in torment. Where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now here then it makes sense, right? Because in this world, in this earthly life, Lazarus is indeed, doesn't seem to be helped by God. But in the life to come, in the eternal heaven, God does indeed help Lazarus. Because in heaven, there's this great reversal where the rich man is now in agony, but Lazarus is the one who is living in heaven and is being comforted and being cared for. Now, we see this great reversal, not just, you know, uh, in the situation, the status, but also in the structure of the parable. Because if you look at it, in verse 19 to 21, it's the rich man who's introduced first, right? But in verse 22, is now... Lazarus, who becomes the one who's introduced first. And we see this great reversal in the situation and status of Lazarus. 
Many times we see it's told to us that Lazarus is at Abraham's side. Interesting, right? Why doesn't Jesus just say, Lazarus just went to heaven? Why does he say Abraham's side? I think it's because it's supposed to show us that on this earthly world, Lazarus was despised, pitiful, pathetic. He's lying outside the gate. But in heaven, he... He takes the place of honor, right? He's he's right beside Abraham, right beside the patriarchal father. In a sense, it's almost as if when he's at Abraham's side, it's almost like a picture of like in the ancient world where they lie down to eat at the heavenly banquet, right? So on earth, Lazarus has no place at the banquet table with the rich man. But in heaven, he's at Abraham's side, a place of honor. In the heavenly banquet. And so, as we look at this passage, the first thing we really see is that the one that God helps, Lazarus, cannot really be seen in this life, right? In this world, in this earthly life of this 90 years or whatever. But it's really only seen in reality in heaven, in the world to come, the one that God helps. But the focus of this parable, again, really is on the rich man. And so, the rich man. We see here, speaking. So the first part of the parable, there's no dialogue, right? But the second part is full of dialogue. And he calls to Abraham. Look what he says there in verse 24. Father Abraham, he says, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Father Abraham, he calls Abraham. He uses the race card, right? He says, look, you and I, we're the same blood, we're the same race, we're the same chosen people of God. And so, it's really hinting that in this world, this rich man may have thought to himself, I'm walking okay, like, you know, Andrew Wong going to the gym, everything's good with me because I have Father Abraham, he's going to secure my path to heaven. But what a mistake it is, because indeed, Father Abraham his family racial links does not secure him a place in heaven. But still, in this narrative, in this parable, we see that he uses this connection, this Father Abraham card, to ask Father Abraham to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool his tongue because he's in agony. Very interesting, right? Because it shows that actually this rich man was aware that there was this beggar at his gate and his name was Lazarus. That makes his actions towards Lazarus even worse because he was truly pitiless, merciless and compassionless to Lazarus whom he knew was waiting outside his gate in great agony. But seeing Lazarus there, he doesn't in a sense feel sorrow or repent or, you know, feel a need to apologize to Lazarus, but he still has this attitude where he wants to use Lazarus, in a sense, as a servant, right? Father Abraham, send Lazarus to be my servant to help me in this agony. But Abraham speaks, in a sense, on behalf of God, right? So what Abraham says here is almost like a pronouncement of what the reality is. And what he says is, what is eternal is irreversible, right? What is eternal is irreversible. 
that now they are like in two separate and distinct localities, right? And they are unable to cross between each other. Now, we don't want to push the imagery of the parable to say this is exactly what it's going to be like in heaven. But what it is trying to state is that it is impossible to cross from hell to heaven and from heaven to hell once you die. There are no second chances, there are no do-overs, there are no you know, replays. right? And so, Abraham is unable, uh, in a sense, to accede to the rich man's request. Lazarus cannot help the rich man in eternity. In verse 27, it goes on. He answered then, the rich man, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Verse 29. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, the point that is trying to be made here is this man wants to send Lazarus and through the resurrection of Lazarus to convince his brothers to repent. But Abraham says, look, they already have Moses and the prophets. They already have Moses and the prophets. And now we mix, it makes sense, right? Why, why we have verse 15, sorry, verse 16 uh, to to verse 17, right? Why, why is it Jesus wants to talk about the law and the prophets until John? Because in a sense, what's happening here is that verse 16 to 17 connects very closely with the end of the parable in verse 29. See the law and the prophets in verse 16 and the law in verse 17, Moses and the prophets in verse 29, Moses and the prophets in verse 31. And what the lesson really is, is that the attitude to God's scripture, the attitude to Moses, the attitude to the prophets, the attitude to the law, is enough right, to respond rightly to God. It's enough to respond rightly to the attitude to money. And that if you fail to have the right heart to hear God's word in the law and the prophets, then you do not have the heart to recognize God's hand in the resurrection and repent. See, the problem is not the sign of the resurrection, and the problem is not even God's scripture. The problem is with the individual's heart in hearing, heeding, and obeying. The failure to hear, heed, and obey will also be the same problem in you failing to recognize Jesus when he rises from the dead. You see, when Jesus uh, spoke these words, when he talks about the resurrection of the dead, right? any Christian reading the book of Luke cannot help but think of Jesus speaking prophetically of his own resurrection from the dead. Because we're looking at the book of Luke now, right? And the second part of Luke, the book 2 of Luke, is the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see that Jesus has risen from the dead, but even with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there are still many people who do not hear and will not repent. And so what we see here is, if you look at this diagram, hopefully it helps us, is that the Pharisees in many ways, 
they represent the five brothers. Okay, the five brothers that the rich man wants to warn. Right? Week after week, year after year, these five brothers will be going to the synagogue, the temple. They will be hearing the law of the prophets. They know the law. But they do not hear the law. They do not heed the law. They do not obey the law. And therefore, they do not recognize Jesus. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, again, the failure to hear God's word in Scripture, again, shows a heart which will fail to recognize and heed because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what exactly does the rich man want to warn his five brothers about? What do they need to repent about? Hey, this is a very, very important issue, right? What exactly does the rich man need to repent of? He doesn't need to repent of wealth, right? Okay, so wealth is not the issue. Riches are not the issue. So we see that the character in the parable is Abraham. Abraham was a rich man. Okay, but he is still in heaven. Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. Abraham was very wealthy in wild livestock and silver and gold. He was a rich man. So the problem is not rich or wealth. The problem is how a person uses the wealth and the riches and the silver and gold that they have. And that was the point that Jesus was trying to make earlier on, right, to the disciples. So, how then were the five brothers meant to learn this lesson from the law? Right, because you know, Abraham already said they have Moses and the law, Moses and the prophets. They should be able to learn this lesson about how to use their wealth. In Luke chapter 10, remember the expert of the law came to test Jesus. How, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this expert in the law said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So in a sense, the heart of the law already tells the five brothers and the Pharisees right, that the use of wealth, the use of possessions and money must be used generously in a loving, caring way in loving neighbor as self. Money cannot be used in a self-centered, self-indulgent, self-focused way, like the rich man. Now, it's really interesting, right? Because someone actually mentioned in one of the commentaries that in the parable is the rich man and Lazarus, right? Why is the rich man not mentioned? Why are the five brothers not mentioned? Because in a way, within the original context, what basically is happening is the Pharisees men put themselves and insert the name where the rich man is as Pharisee. And so in the same way as well, when we look at this parable, right, and we see the name rich man, or sorry, we see the word, the phrase rich man, in a sense, the way the parable is also working is, do we put our name there? Do I put my name, Andrew Ong, and, the, and, and Lazarus? Or, you know, whatever your name is, and Lazarus. Will this be me in eternity, right? Because I've lived my life in luxury and comfort, in self-selfedness, self-indulgence, and fail to ignore those indeed to love my neighbor as myself, fail to be generous and caring to them. Do I need to repent too? Or else I may end up in hell just like the rich man and it will be too late, right? It will be too late. It's all over. Now, 
I just want to spend one second to show that actually, remember we said that Jesus in verse 17 had already said, right, that, that he is the one that fulfills the true meaning of the law. And so as we've been going through the book of Luke, one of the themes, right, and you remember how to read the Bible, one of the themes which keeps coming out over and over again that really Jesus keeps speaking about is how do we use our wealth? So as we've been going through, Jesus told us about the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The priest passed by the man, the Levite passed by the man, but the Samaritan, he used his wealth right, and his resources on this poor man in love. He bandaged his wounds, poured his valuable oil and wine, put him in an inn, gave the innkeeper money to look after him. So in Luke chapter 10, Jesus speaks about this. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus speaks about the failure of the rich fool who lived in a self-indulgent, self-focused way and as a result was not rich towards God and therefore he was a fool. In Luke chapter 12, verse 34, 32, 34, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, right? Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus goes on in verse chapter 14, right? He says, Jesus said to the host, right? When you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, that you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And again, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says, Use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You cannot serve both God and money. So ultimately, it is not just the Old Testament which teaches us love your neighbor, but Jesus teaches us the true expression of how to love neighbor in wealth, right? In generosity. And we need to repent of our failure to do so if that is true for us. So in conclusion, um, do you all recognize where this scene comes from? Okay, so... Okay, so this is from uh, Crazy Rich Asians, right? So if you haven't seen it, I would recommend it. It's actually quite a funny movie. Even though I'm not really a romantic comedy person, it was actually quite good for me. I enjoyed it. But if you actually remember watching it, this is like the opening scene, one of the opening scenes of Crazy Rich Asians. And it shows uh, these uh, Thai Thais doing Bible study in their opulent house, right? And they live really self-indulgent, decadent, luxurious life. And, you know, in the whole of the movie, you never see them really helping anybody or being generous uh, with any of their money. The sad reality is actually uh, the author of the book, Crazy Rich Asians, is a Singaporean. You, you know, his name is Kevin Kwan. And uh, he actually wrote the book uh, based on people that he knew in his life. So these rich Thai Thais, right, who do their Bible study, who are very rich but not generous at all or loving other people, are based on real people that he grew up with. Real Singaporeans, real Singaporean Christians, right? And the question is, are we like that? Are we like that? Are we like these people and the crazy rich Asians, right? We may laugh at them, but, but, but are we like these people? Are we using our wealth in a very self-indulgent, self-centered way and we don't see the needs of others to love and to help them and to be generous to them. Because that's like what Andrew Wong was sharing in the beginning, right? You know, we may think we're walking along very fine, we're feeling good about ourselves, feeling good about our walk in Christ. But today's passage actually tells us that if we don't repent of our use of money, 
that we're in for a root shock, just like the rich man. We will not be in heaven with Abraham, but instead we'll be in agony in hell. And by then it'll be too late. So I hope that for all of us here, we will take to heart what Jesus has taught us about our attitude to Scripture, our attitude to His teaching, and His application of it in terms of how we should use our money. So let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to ask you to help us to learn the hard lessons from today that all of us here, by worldly standards, are very wealthy compared to the poverty that so many people in the world feel. Dear Father, help us to recognize that our wealth, our money, our possessions are not really our own, but are given to us so that we may use them responsibly before you. Help us to love our neighbors ourselves. Help us to be generous. Help us to be caring and loving in the use of our financial resources. Dear Father, if we are tempted to always use our wealth in a self-indulgent, self-centered, and self-luxurious way, help us to see that we are almost like that rich man. We can put our name where his name was in that parable. Help us to repent of that attitude and to bow down before the words of Jesus and the teachings of your scriptures. Help us to repent before it's too late. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for explaining to us God's words today. Uh, indeed, uh, we'll now have a time of uh, reflection uh, as well as discussion. Uh, so, uh, and as well as break our time, right, um, to discuss with one another about today's passage. So we have uh, two questions uh, that is being flashed out uh, on the screen. So the first question, I think Pastor Andrew has uh, mentioned uh, in his sermon as well. What is your attitude to God's scripture and Jesus' teaching? And the second question is, uh, what challenges do you face in hearing and obeying Jesus' teaching on marriage and money? So we have about, sorry, about five minutes. Uh, so don't take too long. I'll call you back. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.